to open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Brethren, let us hear God's holy word. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of this precious word. No one who believes the Bible to be the Word of God has any argument with the statement, God saves sinners by grace. The problem is how we understand that. Uh, As history shows us, even at its highest points of conflict, the, the debates over predestination, election, free will, all of these issues um, is not an argument between God's sovereignty on one hand by those who believe in uh, salvation by the grace of God alone uh, and those who exalt the will and the decision of man on the other, man's responsibility. Generally, both camps believe that God is sovereign and that men are responsible. And again, this is those who believe that the Word of God is in fact the inspired and infallible revelation of God. The difficulty enters in how we understand God being sovereign and men being responsible. So it's important for us to realize that when we enter in to any kind of uh, theological discourse and debate, that we be as fair and as uh, cautious with the position of those with whom we disagree as we would hope they would be to us. We have read here that God saves by grace. And our contention from the beginning is is that the position we hold is simply that found not only through all the scriptures, but clearly defined by the Apostle Paul. Here we have dead sinners, not damaged, not injured sinners, but dead sinners made alive by God, not helped by God to make themselves a little more alive, not helped by God to make their decision, 
but that God in his sovereign power, mercy, and grace makes dead sinners alive by his mighty power, regenerating them by the Holy Ghost and bringing them to life in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. This, this, would, this would be any fair and plain reading of the five verses that we just read. So why are there differences among us? Well, we'll see those unfold in the weeks ahead. But <clears throat> as we've pointed out, we're asking two questions through our study. Who is God? And what has God done to save sinners? This is what we're asking, and this is what we want to answer as we study through the Scriptures. Who is God? What has God done to save sinners? We've also set forth that there are only two religions, God-centered and man-centered. We hold, we believe fervently, not because someone along the line uh, since the New Testament made this up, but because the apostles plainly taught that the religion to be found in scriptures is a God-centered religion whereby the sovereign almighty God makes dead sinners alive by his grace. We believe that's God-centered. All the glory of salvation goes to our God and not to men. So, we have been uh, working through a historical survey for the last uh, few weeks. Tonight is our last night. I had actually hoped to conclude it last week, but uh, was unsuccessful in doing so. So, uh, I'm not going to do my usual uh, review this evening. I always like to review what we've looked over in the, in the, the weeks before, just to refresh our minds in between the times that uh, um, we come together to study these things, but to make sure I do, in fact, close my historical survey this evening, uh, I will encourage you, if you want uh, the earlier teaching, just to get the tape, and uh, you can have a better-than-review and get the whole thing. So this evening... Uh, we want to pick up with this issue. Now remember, why are we doing a historical survey? I mean, when we come together, uh, don't the Lord's children want uh, to hear the Word of God? Absolutely. This is what feeds us. This is the revelation of God. But we do not want to deny, brethren, that from Genesis to Revelation, what do we have? Holy history. God's work in history. And when we do an historical survey of the of the type that we're doing, all we're attempting to do is to do the same thing in the sense of showing and revealing and holding up to God's glory His great works among men throughout history. The difference is, this is inspired. The history I will give you this evening is not. But we do want to punctuate it all the way through with the Scriptures of God so that we might see that the history that we see from Genesis to Revelation is continuous to the very things we see now. We're not preaching something new, something unusual. We're preaching what we believe that we find all the way through the entire Word of God. It's in the prophet of Jonah. Salvation is of the Lord. So, 
This evening we'll, we will finish, God willing, our historical survey. We, uh, we left off last week having looked at uh, John Calvin. I remind you once again of another historical fact as we take up our study this evening. John Calvin did not systematize the doctrines that are referred to as the five points of Calvinism. He did not sit down and write a book. Chapter 1, total depravity. Chapter 2, uh, unconditional election. He, he did not do that. He was doing all that he could in the face of persecution to handle the Word of God honestly, fairly, and setting forth the doctrine found in Scripture. And he has chapters on predestination and election. Why? Because Paul talks about predestination and election. And because other writers throughout the Bible talk about predestination and election. He was simply attempting to give expositions of Scripture. Whether you agree with him or not, whether you think he was fair or honest or right-minded or not, that's not the issue. In his own words, he will tell you that his purpose was to defend the apostolic faith. And we believe that as far as his understanding of how God saves sinners, he rightly understood it. We do not follow him. We follow Christ, the apostles, and the writers of Scripture. And we agree with those throughout history that we believe have rightly understood the Word of God in these matters. So, this is not a new doctrine. I have been attempting to show from the New Testament all the way into the, the Church Fathers, uh, up to the time of Augustine, from Augustine to the time of the Reformation, and now from the time of the Reformation up to the present, that all we're seeing is the battle between God-centered religion and man-centered religion over and over and over, generation after generation. So I, I, I trust that you will find that uh, our final look at history here, all together combined with the others, at least profitably sets forth that we're not doing something new, but we're simply holding to what we believe has been the proper understanding of these things in greater or lesser definition throughout the history of God's Word and the Lord's Church since the time of the New Testament. Having said that, <clears throat> there was a gentleman by the name of Jacob Hermanzoon. Now, Hermanzoon means Herman's son. He was born in Udewater, the Netherlands. I probably ought to have Brother Stephen Frakes come and read the list of names that I'm about to attempt to read since he lived in that area for some time. He'll probably do more justice. You may come make all your corrections after the service. Uh, but uh, this gentleman, this young man, became the 12th student at the new university there in Udawater. Uh And it's there that we encounter the first recorded use of the Latinized form of his name, which was Jacobus or Jacobus Arminius. He studied at Geneva, where he studied under Calvin's successor, Theodore Beza. Now, this comes as a shock to people who don't read church history. 
very often they throw names around without ever having taken the time to pick up books of history and read them carefully to find out who their so-called opponents are or even who their heroes are. Sometimes they're shocked uh, in either case. But many are surprised to know that Arminius was a prized student of Theodore Beza, who was Calvin's successor in Geneva. And uh, later, Arminius studied at Basel, where Calvin had been for years. He was in... Uh, he was being taught what was clearly called in those days the Reformed faith. Now, during his years as a pastor, it became clear from his sermons that he was departing from the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism, which uh, were the confessions of the Reformed churches. Now, you realize, I trust... Um, and in, in, often Baptists are not good at, at understanding this. <clears throat> Why was there such an emphasis on confessions? Why was there such an emphasis on catechisms, especially this explosively rich time of the Reformation? It was because so many were attempting to reform what they understood to be Christianity. They were coming outside, they were stepping outside of the Roman Catholic Church and saying, Roman Catholicism is not biblical Christianity. We're studying the Hebrew, we're studying the Greek, and we're coming to a clearer understanding of the doctrine of the apostles. And of course, if, as I've said now several times, if, if for a thousand years there's only been one thing, this, this colossal entity called uh, Christianity, which was basically Roman Catholicism, if you stood outside and said, you're not Christianity, well then what was expected of you was then to define what Christianity was. If this admit, then that is. And so there was this tremendous, uh, tremendously rich time of confessions where... Uh, where brethren were studying the scriptures, they, they ate, they drank, they breathed doctrine, theology. They were studying to grasp what is biblical theology. What is the teaching of Paul? What is the teaching of John? It's been buried under tradition for so long. We want to dig it out, and then we want to be able to say to men, all right, here we stand. This is what we believe Christianity to be. So, of course, you would expect to see disagreements. You're not going to see all of the... Uh, confessions agreeing with one another. You're going to see an evolution. They're going to progress. They're going to sharpen themselves in their definition and understanding of things. If you read Martin Luther in his early years and then read him in his later years, there's an extraordinary progress in his understanding of the Word of God. If you read John Calvin in his early years to his later years, you see an extraordinary progress in his understanding of the Word of God. And brethren, do we not pray the same for ourselves? Do you not understand more of the Word of God today than you did when you first came to see the light and the glory of the risen Savior? It certainly ought to be so. Well, let's not be surprised at these things. Uh, this isn't just dry and dusty ho-hum. We're seeing the work of God as men are grappling with His Word and trying to say, here we stand, here is Christianity. We don't think it's over there, we think it's here. So, 
it was clear that Arminius was moving away from the Belgic uh, Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism, which were the confessions of those uh, Reformed churches there in the Netherlands. He left the pastorate, as was uh, pretty much a custom in that time, to become a professor of theology. Men would uh, be students, and then they would become pastors, and then later they would become teachers of men who were becoming pastors. As the theology continued to grow and develop, <clears throat> Now, he was a professor of theology at the University of Leiden where he became involved in a violent controversy with his uh, colleague, Francis Gomerus. Gomerus held strongly to the Reformed faith. He held strongly to uh, the doctrine as defined in the Confessions. And it was clear that Arminius was departing from those. As a matter of fact... Uh, at least one recent biography of Arminius would seem to, to point and try to defend uh, the idea that Arminius probably never was entirely convinced of Reformed doctrine. The earlier view of him was that he was well taught, understood the Reformed faith, proclaimed the, the Reformed faith, and then uh, changed his mind. Where some are arguing now that that's, there's probably less truth in that and was originally understood. He probably had difficulties uh, with uh, his understanding of Calvinism, predestination, all of those things at that time. Now this very bitter con contention, this theological issue, divided both the student body and the churches throughout the country. I mean, it galvanized men on both sides. And there were those who held to the doctrine of God's sovereign grace and the, other, the others who were holding forth the human responsibility. Now, both believed that God was sovereign. Both believed in human responsibility. But those that were standing in the Calvinistic traditions were attempting to hold forth God's sovereign grace, understanding man's responsibility in such a way as that when God saved sinners, God received all the glory. The others were saying, well, you just, you're leaving man out of it. I mean, you're just, it's just all God and there's no man. And when we look in the Bible, obviously man's got something to do in here. So this split the, the churches and the student body right down the middle. And there was tremendous controversy that uh, erupted through, through the whole nation. Arminius and his later followers wanted the confessions of the churches throughout the Netherlands to reflect his doctrine. In other words, after years of study, he wanted to reform the Reformation. That's basically what was happening. He uh, died in 1609. Now, it's, it's important. It's important for us to note that Arminius did not work out or develop the system of doctrines that are now called by his name. All right, We say, ah, oh, that's Arminianism, or oh, that's Calvinism. Neither one of these men worked out a system that they, that they put their names on. They were, they were both men, whether you agree with either one of them, or neither one of them, both of them were attempting to grapple with the Scriptures in the light of the day in which they lived, and tried to come up with an understanding of what was the doctrine 
of the Word of God. And neither one of them sat down and wrote out what are called the five points of Arminianism or the five points of Calvinism. That came later, as we'll see, from their followers. <clears throat> now, Arminius' followers uh, issued, issued a remonstrance, a theological protest, so to speak. They were saying, all right, here's what the confessions say, and we disagree with those confessions. We don't believe that that's what the Word of God teaches. That's a remonstrance. <clears throat> so they issued a remonstrance in 1610. This is the year after Arminius died. And this, uh, this remonstrance outlined their doctrine. Now, uh, this was led by men such as Simon Episcopius, Johannes Eitenbogert, and Jan van Olden Barnevelt. That's the best I can do with those. But they set forth their arguments in what were called the Five Articles. Okay, does that number sound familiar? Five. They set forth in their remonstrance five articles. And that brings us to the time that we call, or, or the event that we call the Synod of Dort. This took place in 1618 through 1619. The, the young ministers that Arminius had trained spread his doctrine to the churches throughout the Netherlands. And it wasn't long before controversy reverberated throughout the entire country. This controversy gave birth to a strong party spirit which threatened to split both the church and the provinces of the Netherlands. Brethren, the government was involved in this. This was the issue of the day. This was not some uh, small, obscure argument going off in a corner uh, between a couple of fellows. The entire nation was split, uh, and sometimes violently so, which, uh, of course, is much to our great grief when we see these things in the history of the church. But men took the issue of God's doctrine seriously. They thought it was the Lord's Word, but well, they took it seriously. It wasn't this, I'm okay, you're okay, just believe what you want to believe, we'll all get there sooner or later. It wasn't their mindset. There had been too much bloodshed in attempting to stand and defend the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So men held on tenaciously to their doctrinal positions. Now, the situation deteriorated until 1617 when some feared that a civil war actually might break out. <clears throat> By the authority of the States General, a synod was convened in Dort, Holland, for the purpose of settling the theological questions raised by the disciples of Arminius. Now, a synod is simply a council or an assembly of church officials or churches. <clears throat> and uh, this assembly was held or held its sessions from November 13, 1618 to May 9, 1619. It consisted of pastors, elders, theologians <clears throat> from the churches of Holland, and it had deputies from the churches of England, Scotland, Hesse, Bremen, the Palatinate, Switzerland, 
Uh, the French delegates uh, were prevented from being present uh, by order of their king. Now, it's, uh, it's very important, again, for us to understand that the Armenian attack upon the Reformed understanding of these doctrines began with the doctrine of predestination. Why? Because, de depending on how you understand the doctrine of predestination, will determine what you believe about God and what He's done to save sinners. It's that simple. Who is God? Who is God and what has He done to save sinners? When you begin to deal with the very difficult, no doubt, but plainly stated biblical doctrine of predestination, you have to start asking yourself, Who is God? What kind of power does He have? And what has he done to save sinners? Now, therefore, the, the Arminians immediately attacked this doctrine as it had been understood through the Reformed churches. It's what Augustine had taught centuries and centuries earlier. Why? Because he had stood against Pelagius using what Paul had said the very kind of passage that I read at the beginning, holding forth that God comes to lost, dead sinners and opens their hearts and brings them to a saving knowledge of Christ because before the foundation of the world, He had purposed to do so. This was what God purposed to do. So, the Armenian said, No, you see, if you believe that, that messes with man's responsibility in his will. Now, why am I bringing this out? Well, because the order of the synod's reputation began where the Arminians started the attack. Right? The council gathers to consider what they've said. The Arminians have five doctrines that they're arguing about. The first thing that they attack is predestination. So the first thing that the council answers is predestination. Now because of that, many throughout the history of the church who are not sympathetic with what we hold and what we believe the scriptures teach, think that, all right, well, see, you go all the way back to the Synod of Dort. They just got one doctrine. That's predestination. That's their whole deal. And if you read what men say very often about what uh, those of us who hold to the, the glorious, sovereign grace of God believe, that's what they'll say. Well, the whole center of their system, I mean, their whole thing is just predestination. Well, that's, that's an unfair view of what was happening here. They were simply taking on where the enemy was coming, so to speak, where the attack was first being laid. You're, and, and the Armenians, of course, were attacking that because they realized that lying at the heart of it was, who's God? What did he do? What, what, what did he do to save sinners? Now, we don't believe that everything flows from predestination in and of itself. We believe the scriptural testimony, as we will see, starting next week, that God had a purpose in saving sinners. All we want to do is go to the scriptures and find out what is that purpose. Does the scripture tell us? We will see that it does. I think very clearly.
Now, here were the five articles that the Arminian ministers brought forth. First of all, they said God's election is grounded in his foresight of faith and perseverance. And his reprobation is in the foresight of unbelief. Now, in other words, election is conditional upon man's response. Here's what I mean. When they read the Bible and they see the word predestination in there, well, they don't like that. Because somehow or another, that means God's in control of all this stuff. And certainly man has got to have a, a, a will that makes a difference in all of this. So they said, what the Bible has to be teaching is that God looked down through history. And he saw all of those that were going to believe. Okay, that one's going to believe. That one's going to believe and he'll, he'll be faithful to the end. This one will believe and he'll be faithful to the end. And God then chose those to be his children. Okay? That's the Arminian doctrine. How many of you have heard that before? How many of you have heard somebody say that? Okay. Is that new? No. It's been around all the way through history. And this is what they said. All right. God looks down and He sees who's going to believe. He sees who's going to make it to the end. And so He chooses those. So in this view then, God doesn't actually choose someone into salvation until after He sees who will choose Him. So the obvious question that I lay to you is, is that God-centered? Or is that man-centered? Who's determining how things are going to go in that view? Why, it's the men out there in the future. It isn't God. He's simply rubber-stamping and, and saying, ah, well, he was, he's going to do right, so I'll, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take that one, and he's going to do right, so I'll take that one. Brethren, this is, what, this is what they began the assault with. Secondly, they said that the intent of Christ's redemptive work was the salvation of everybody. What God intended to do was to save everybody. However, forgiveness is actually only given to those who believe. I'd like to save everyone. And here's the difference. What this means is that when Christ died on the cross, He didn't secure the salvation of anyone. He made salvation possible. Everybody with me on that? It isn't that Jesus secured salvation for anyone. He simply, because He purposed to save everyone, died for everyone and made it possible. Now, what's the missing key? Man's choice. So, Christ has done all He can do. God's done all He can do. What's the logical conclusion? The rest is up to you. How many of you have heard that doctrine? Okay. See, this, is, this was their second doctrine. Thirdly, they said fallen humanity is incapable of any good and specifically of saving faith except by the intervention of the Holy Spirit. Now, we would agree with that on the surface. But what they meant was that God gives sufficient grace to man 
so that he may believe if he wants to. Okay? God gives grace and he brings men up to the point of decision by that grace. They never do it without God's grace. However, right at the point of decision, God waits for them to make that decision or to reject. And at the point they make the decision, then he gives them more grace to keep going. Alright? Is that God-centered or is that man-centered? You see what I'm saying? These are things that we have to ask when we look at it. Now, when I say this, brethren, I'm not saying it, I'm not saying it to be harsh. I'm saying these are the things that we have to wrestle through. And, and these were not little matters to these men. They came together and they wrestled and they strove. They wept. You didn't just finish and say, well, okay, you, you think what you think and I think what I'll think. At the end of this, someone was going to be called a heretic. So this is serious. And I don't ever want it to... Wherever I may disagree with someone, I, do, I don't ever want to sound as though somehow or another in our position we're some kind of superior people and these people are, are mental midgets or anything like that. Brethren, I don't think any of us here together, we combined all our brains together, we probably didn't have the brain power of Arminius. Beza said he was a man of exceptional gifts. What's the issue in all of this? It's not how brilliant men are. It's who is God and what has He done to save His people. It's whether God gives a man the grace to see in His Word. And as Paul said, what do we have that God hasn't given us? If you really understand grace... You shouldn't be some theological puffed up blowfish. You should worship God with all your heart. Because God in His mercy has had mercy on a vile wretch like you or me. So I don't want to make this sound as if I'm mocking them. I'm just saying I want you to understand the issues. So, <clears throat> As I said, they meant that uh, God gives sufficient grace to man so that he may believe on Christ if he wills. Because, of course, man's will is free. Their fourth doctrine was that while grace is necessary for all, it is not irresistible. Okay, they believe. If you said, Mr. Arminius, do you believe in salvation by grace? Absolutely. Of course, you could talk to a Jesuit and say, do you believe in salvation by grace? And he would say, yes, I certainly do. It isn't nodding your head to saying, I believe in salvation by grace. It's, what do you mean by it? Who is God, and what has he done to save sinners? And so it is here that they're saying, grace, you've got to have grace to be saved. But, you can receive it or blow it off. Again, there's a certain truth here that we must be very careful with, and we'll see it as we go through that doctrine and look at those scriptures. Man can believe or resist God's grace, is what they taught. Because his will is free, he simply cooperates with God, or he doesn't. Now, you may have never heard this, but when I grew up, I, I, I heard preachers often talk about voting for God, casting your vote. What are you going to do today? 
What are you going to do today? Are you going to cast your vote for the Lord? Or are you going to leave? Now, why do they say things like this when we don't find that in the Scriptures? Because the emphasis is upon man and his will. And these kinds of things come out of that. So, he cooperates with God or he doesn't. God does send His grace. And there are some verses that say, you do always resist the Spirit of God. Doesn't the Bible say that? It certainly does. So we're going to have to see. What, what does that mean? It isn't as if these men came without a Bible and said, we've just made up some stuff. They were reading Scriptures. And they were bringing Scriptures. And they were arguing these Scriptures. Finally, there was the question of perseverance. And they said, well, we're not really sure. That's something that's open-ended. It's something that, that needs to be more carefully studied before any conclusion can be reached. In other words, they were saying that a true believer, whether or not a true believer could finally fall from grace and perish, was something that they weren't really ready to say Absolutely, this can happen. But they had to say, in light of what, in light of the other things we believe, sure seems like there's a good case for it. And this is finally what some of those later, after the Synod of Dort, concluded. Yes, Christians can lose their salvation. Has anybody ever heard that doctrine? Certainly. So, none of this is new. It is more defined in the present than it was at that time because that finally came to be the theological issue to wrestle through. In the earlier years, other doctrines were the things that uh, demanded the, uh, the time and attention of the theologians. So, the Synod answered and refuted the remonstrance, the Arminians, point by point, how many articles did the Arminians have? Five. And those that were answering them took the Arminians' points one at a time and said, we hear what you're saying here. Now, we go to the Word of God and we find this verse and this passage and this passage and that refutes the way you understand these verses. And they did that all the way down the line. And these doctrinal refutations were called the canons of Dort. And they're better known in history as the five points of Calvinism. Because they were those who basically understood the scriptures in the way that Calvin did. They were influenced by his writing in the Institutes. And those that had put together the, the Reformed Confessions were of that same mind. Not because Calvin made them up but because these things have been being argued and wrestled through at greater or lesser degrees from the time of the New Testament. But now they were on the front burner. Now whether one agrees or not with these doctrines drawn up by the Synod of Dort, each article was examined carefully by the members of the Synod. Remember, there were a number of representatives from the churches right there in the Netherlands, 
And then there were representatives from what were known as the Reformed churches in other countries. This was an international issue. Now listen to the, the oath that every single member of that committee had to uh, uh, agree to. Quote, I promise before God in whom I believe and whom I worship as being present in this place and as being the searcher of all hearts that during the course of the proceedings of this synod which will examine and decide not only the five points of Arminianism and all the differences resulting from them, but also any other doctrine, I will use no human writing, but only the Word of God, which is an infallible rule of faith. And during all these discussions, I will only aim at the glory of God, the peace of the church, and especially the preservation of the purity of doctrine. So help me, my Savior Jesus Christ. I beseech Him to assist me by His Holy Spirit. Close quote. Now whether you agree with their conclusions or not, whether you say, I don't even believe in vows, they shouldn't have ever taken those. All I'm doing is setting this before you to say that every man that went in there had to publicly announce that there was one source for what he believed and was going to deal with the doctrines that were set before him to the best of his ability according to the Scriptures. They didn't have the church fathers laid out in front of them. They didn't have Augustine laid out in front of them. They didn't have Calvin's Institutes laid out in front of them. Yes, they'd read all of those things. They'd read many things. But they read, they read everybody. They read the Roman Catholics. They read the Pelagians. They read the semi-Pelagians. They read all the different viewpoints because they were examining the Word of God and saying, were these men right? Were these men right? Did these understand the truth? Do we understand the truth? But when it came down to that issue, and when it came down to those five doctrines... Everyone that went into that meeting had to say, One source, the Word of God. So help me, my Savior, Jesus Christ. Send me your Holy Spirit. You can say they were, they meant it or they didn't. You can wrestle with that before the Lord. But brethren, I think that this is the attitude that all of us must come to the Word of God with. But we must remember at that very point, all of God's people don't agree. Sometimes holding this very desire in their hearts. Let's at least give them the benefit of saying, if they took that vow, we hope that that's all that they did. Now, the synod condemned Arminianism as heresy, and some of Arminius' disciples were imprisoned or banished. This was no little deal. Though later they were permitted back into the country and were permitted uh, to have their own university. Now some of the groups throughout the history of the church that are Arminian, that have taken up the five articles of the Arminians and said this is what the scriptures teach are the Methodists, the Pentecostals, the Assemblies of God, 
most charismatic groups. Many, many Baptists. Christian Missionary and Alliance. The Nazarene churches. <clears throat> and others. Now, brethren, let's, let's conclude our thinking here. When we come to this issue, whether we use terms like Calvinism or Arminianism or any of these types of things, let us first and foremost cast our whole allegiance with the Word of God and say wherever the Word of God leads, that's where we'll go. We, we believe, we're convinced, this is why we preach and teach these things. These brethren in 16, 18, and 19 went to the Word of God and said, this is, this is what we see. Uh, and, and as we go all the way back, what do we find them doing? Over and over, they go through the whole Scripture, but especially, especially to Paul. It is a Pauline theology. Augustinianism is basically Paulinian, Paulinism, when we're talking about salvation. Not talking about every other doctrine that Augustine or Calvin or Arminius believed. We're talking about who God is and what He's done to save men. The Calvinism is the term given to the system of doctrine that's formulated by that reformer, though he would never have been in agreement with it bearing its na his name. From his writings and sermons and letters, it is clear that the driving force of, of Calvin's life was the glory of God. He didn't hold forth predestination because that was his pet doctrine. He held forth the doctrines that he believed gave all the glory of salvation to God and His Son, Jesus Christ. You can say, I don't like him, I don't like his book, I don't like what he thinks. Well, that's fine. But at least understand what he said he was attempting to do. I want Christ to have all the glory. I want him to have all the glory. And his understanding of God's sovereignty and grace were not new. His desire was to use all the gifts that the Lord had given him to bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ who had saved him out of his darkness. Using all of the techniques a biblical interpretation that he had acquired as a humanist scholar and uh, building upon truths that had been understood for centuries, Calvin did what he could to simply interpret and apply as the teaching of the Old and the New Testament. Now, the impact of this system of doctrine upon the Western world has spread to almost every area of life. If you will read history carefully, brethren, many do not realize it, but if you will read carefully, uh, there are many who are coming to see more and more that it was John Calvin who, when he put his pen to paper and wrote uh, in his institutes regarding the understanding of the Bible and civil government, that he was founding the United States of America. If you will read the men who came here, they were coming because having read the institutes and then gone to the scriptures, they said, we want to find a place where we can live and walk under the, 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 the government of Almighty God. And that's one of the reasons they came here. The pilgrims and the Puritans that founded this nation were almost all men who believed this. Few today realize the profound number of the great preachers and missionaries that were conquered by the grace of God and lived to bear witness of that great gospel. This is not a handful 
of strange people that just sit in their house and say, well, God just saves people when He wants to and we don't do anything. And there may be people that think like that. But brethren, that's not what these doctrines properly understood lead a man to. Think of, of, of the men throughout history like John Knox uh, that was the great reformer of Scotland. John Owen. Thomas Goodwin who were the greatest English theologians perhaps uh, ever. John Bunyan the beloved author of Pilgrim's Progress. Matthew Henry whose commentary is still being printed and used by Christians of every denomination. George Whitfield, perhaps the greatest evangelist in the history um, of, of uh, modern uh, times since the Reformation, uh, mightily used of God in the Great Awakening in both England and in the American colonies. Jonathan Edwards, who's been called the greatest uh, theologian yet to grace the American scene. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers in all of history, whose sermons in over 50 volumes are still being sold today. And even his enemies love his sermons. <laughs> Why? Because he gives all the glory to Christ. And that's the point. It's not to say, our team against your team. It's to say, God, to God be the glory. Great things He hath done. Oh, brethren. It's, it's, it's Him. Adoniram Judson, Luther Rice, William Carey, John G. Patton, some of the greatest missionaries in all of history. They went because they knew that God saved sinners and they took the glorious gospel of God's grace to the ends of the earth according to the great commission of the Lord Jesus. And they preached a mighty doctrine that exalted the grace of God and the glories of a resurrected Savior. That all the glory and the, and the, and the, the grandeur of salvation might be given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Great theologians like Wilhelmus of Brockle and Luther and Calvin and Francis Turretin and John Gill, W.G.T. Shedd, Charles and A.A. Hodge, Louis Burkhoff, A.H. Strong, R.L. Dabney, J.H. Thornwell, and I could just go on and on and on. Brethren, this is not something new. This is not something that a little Frenchman who didn't have anything else to do sat down and thought up. It is a doctrine understood by the Lord's people throughout the history of the church. Whether you agree or disagree with it, these are not new doctrines. They were not made up by John Calvin. And even the form that we have them in today, they did not start off as being, well, we're going to sit down and tell the whole world in five points what Calvinism was. It was a defense of the faith against an attack by those who said, we've got to have a little more man in this thing. It's all summed up, brethren, in the hymn that if many truly understood what they were singing, they'd quit singing it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I helped God find me. I once was lost, but now I am, am found. Someone came and found me was blind, but now I see. John Newton knew who he was. And if you read every verse of that glorious hymn, you will hear the glories of a saving God.
You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. But now, God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, I once was lost, but now am found, hath quickened us together with Christ, was blind, but now I see. By grace ye are saved. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.